Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free. Greetings, urban farmers, gardeners, and healthy food visionaries. Farmer Greg here, and welcome to the 747th episode of the Urban Farm Podcast, where every day we work together to educate and inspire you to become part of your food revolution. Welcome, welcome, everybody. Greg Peterson coming to you from Urban Farm U, and I'm here with Bill McDorman for our monthly seed chat. Welcome, Bill. Wow, that was a quick month. Yeah, <laughs> right. <Good to> see <laughs> yeah, they seem to be going faster and faster as I get older and older. Yeah, yeah. I'm happy to be here, though. Thank you. And I yeah. think to, tonight's topic is very important. Yeah, Grex. What is it, and what do we do with it? <laughs> Shall we just jump in? Yeah, I want to encourage everyone. If you have questions, as I often say on here, the most important information for most of us is pertains to what's going on in our own gardens mm -hmm. in particular. So sometimes when we get on national things like this, you go, I don't want to ask a question like that because it's only for me and my stuff. And I always encourage everyone to ask those questions. Those yeah. are the most important questions. We'll yeah. cover general stuff and you can ask questions about that. But if you've got individual ones, please ask them because if we can help you down the road, then we help all of us. That's how I feel about it. Yeah. And for those of you that are listening on the podcast, because this goes out the following month on our Urban Farm podcast, you can join us the second Tuesday of the month where Bill and I get together and have a seed chat. The third Tuesday of the month is our garden chat. And we always come up with great topics for that too. Oh man, it's just, you have to, it's in real time. The number of subjects and the things that we've evolved and what we say about them over the past few years on this has been incredible. Yeah. There's no way just to cover the subject, answer all the questions and that's it because it's always evolving. And I think tonight's topic is part of that. I think one of the reasons we got into doing what we do, Greg, and the reason we're friends underlying all this is the problems in our food system. You could talk about it in lots of different ways, but one of the major problems is its centralization and its industrialization. Yeah. And so what do you do? What sorts of tools do we have as individuals to right the ship? And to make sure that we're all going to sail off into the sunset happy and healthy. And, yeah. and I think the, the word Grex is one of the most important tools. 
that's come about. I'm saying that because you've got to understand this context. Well, if you're part of permaculture and decentralizing agriculture and growing things locally and supporting those and with that are more nutrient dense food that gives off less carbon, all these sorts of things, then Grex, the idea of a Grex can be one of the most important things that can help all of them. And mm-hmm. so that's why I like the subject. And so I'll just tell you, the first time I heard the word was from Alan Capular, who, if you talk to, I would say all of the people I know from my generation that got involved in the seed diversity movement, uh-huh. They all look up to Alan Capular. He was a brilliant nuclear physicist who quit when he figured out what they were really doing with his knowledge, moved back to Oregon in the late 60s, early 70s, and started growing seeds. And he brought this incredibly brilliant nuclear physicist mind into how do we grow our own and, and be successful at it. Uh-huh. And he started a company called Peace Seeds. And I'm happy to report that his daughter now runs a company called Peace Seedlings. She's carried on a lot of his original work. And he's a brilliant breeder. Alan, in playing around with things, had this idea that if he mixed three different things together, and so he would pick his favorite old heirloom, he would pick something that had traits that he really liked, And then he would pick the best hybrid he could find that represented that. And he first did it with onions. And then- So you're talking about the same variety. So all peppers, all onions, all- Right, right. All right, cool. So he's mixing them, which was like heresy at the time. First of all, you can't save seeds from hybrids. Right. Yeah, Alan, most American gardeners would say. So why are you mixing in a hybrid? Uh And, And why are you mixing? How do you, you can't make sure it breeds true? It's going to be messy. You're going to get crosses you don't understand. And what happened was that because he was playing around and he did three different things, his own words, and I saw a little video of him trying to explain it, and he was all lit up. It was like this explosion of diversity came out of the mix. So he mixed these three, grew them in the garden at the same time, let their pollen mix and then saved those seeds and planted it out and got every color onion in the rainbow. It was just like this mind-blowing thing happened. So he tried it with beets and again, was unbelievably successful. And so people said, but Alan, it's mixed, it's mixed up. It's not like the hybrid beet that you used. It's not like the early winter tall top heirloom that you put in or the other disease resistant one. It's not like any of those. What guidelines are you using? And he said, I want it to taste good and I want it to be colorful. I don't care if they're round because I eat them at home. I don't have to sell them. And so his three root beet Grex became famous. It was really the first Grex that was available for sale. If you'll Google it, you'll find a number of companies that still sell Allen Capulars. And that's been over 10 years now. But his three root Greek Grex is still on the market. All right. We're like eight minutes into this and we still haven't defined what Grex is. And I wanted you to tease people out of it. I think it's time that we define what is a Grex. Mix vegetables or grains together. A barley Grex, a wheat Grex, a beet 
Grex, an rice. onion Grex. And rice. so different rice Grex, which I sent to you. So you and how many? Joseph Lofthouse, our good friend who wrote Land Race Gardening, who really develops a lot of these ideas in his book, talks about 50. The Occidental Arts in Ecology, Permaculture site in California, requested a Grex of bread wheats from the National Seed Storage Laboratory and talked them into sending him a thousand different varieties of wheat. Really? And they mixed them all up. So this is the same idea. And so why might we be doing this? And that's, I just want to just add this one point because I think it's really important is that if we want to make this change from industrial agriculture to a more sustainable and local agriculture, this is the tool that allows us to do that in the most quick, efficient way, really. And by so basically- by mixing yeah, was, things, we can yes. find what works for us faster. That's really what's behind it. And so you're taking, in my case, what you sent me was upland rice, right. which is doesn't require water or patties. And right. you sent me 80 different varieties right. in this Grex. Right. And it's a packet of maybe two ounces of seeds, maybe three ounces of seeds. And what the request is for me to do is to go out and plant them all. Right. I'm actually going to split half of them with Matthew from Living Seed Company. Great. And go out and plant them all and see what grows. And some of them may just be wimpy and not do anything. Others may be just like, whoa. And so you let them grow. You let them cross, cross-pollinate. Right. You harvest them. You save those seeds. Right. And you do it again. Exactly. Why? Because the ones that are adapted to your specific conditions that need the fewest inputs and babying are the ones that you want the seeds from to form your next generation. As Steve Jones, who runs the bread lab in Washington says, which ones do you save the seeds for? Bill, it's the ones that jump up and shout at you. I'm <laughs> here, I'm alive, I'm vibrant. Those are the ones that you want and you save those and plant them. Why mess around with 68 varieties that aren't going to work very well for you when maybe two or three or four of those have whatever it takes from wherever they came from to thrive in your backyard. Now, if you were to do a traditional agricultural experiment and try to grow out 70 varieties individually, and keep notes and see which ones work for you. It would be a bookkeeping nightmare, if nothing else, and you would yeah. never do it. Just admit it. We, none of us have the facilities, the room or whatever to do that. So this is a way we can hack the system and we can find plants that work for us. Now they can work for us on two levels. You talked about cross-pollination. Rice only maybe up to 10% pollination, it really doesn't cross-pollinate much. So what you're looking for are whole varieties out of the 70 that will work for you. If you did a crop more, say you wanted to try, I'm trying to think of another kale, for instance, or one of your other favorite vegetables that does cross quite a bit, what you would be selecting and you save seeds from whatever worked best from you and planted those, 
you would be selecting not just varieties. In fact, you probably wouldn't get pure varieties anymore, but you would be selecting the genetics that are adapted within those varieties mm -hmm. that work for you. So it's a little bit, yeah, it's good for people to understand that part. But the outcome's the same. Just save seeds from whatever works for you. As Joseph Lofthouse, who has years of experience doing this now, he said, remember this, year three is the magic year. If you'll grow this out, your rice grows out this year, Greg. Save mm -hmm. the seeds from those things you really like and plant them again. And save those seeds the next year. By the third year, you'll start to see huge differences. The original thing that you started and the ones that you're growing now. And so it takes a bit of dedication, but hey, that's what we're here for now, to learn how to grow food for ourselves locally. And I could make my own Grex because I have maybe a dozen different types of wheat because I bought the Great American Seed Up Wheat Bundle. Hayden Mills, he had given me a couple of different varieties and you had given me a variety from Occidental Arts. I can just take them and mix them together and go plant them and see what happens. And this is the real hack to this whole thing. And, I, and that I read about that blew my mind when I read Joseph Lofthouse's book, Land Race Gardening is that it solves the other problem that we have as modern gardeners. So the first problem is we don't have enough diversity in right. our yards and gardens. 90% of it, as I always say on this show, every yep. month is disappeared. And we need more diversity as our climate changes. We need to find what works for us. And nobody is selling it, right? That's why we have seed exchanges now and seed libraries. We need to bring as much diversity as possible. And by mixing these things, Grexit, forming these Grexes, we can find a way to try to sift through thousands, literally thousands mm -hmm. of varieties of things in a way that home gardeners can understand. The other problem it solves among seed savers is that we have too many damn seeds. I've got right? a whole full stack to the ceiling of stuff yep. that has either been given to me or I've saved over the years. And I'm never going to get the time and energy to go back through Face it, be honest. I'm going to be 70 soon. How many more gardens do I get? And I've been doing this since I was 20. So the problem is solved. Do what Joseph Lofthouse did. When I saw him the last time he taught at a seed school, summer before last forest, he just brought quart canning jars filled with his entire seed collection. He everything. everything. He went through all of his beans, mixed them, all of his peppers, mixed them all of his tomatoes just put them in a big jar just get same jar all the, yeah just he had jars and if you want some he go, reaches in gives you a handful of his graxes and he's been doing this now to people all over the united states and you can if you'll um google grex or grex seeds for sale as i did they almost all say oh the original grex seeds were given to us by joseph lofthouse that's where they got the idea and that's how they got started doing it. And so what I want to do before we're done is read you the story of one of those. Can I do that? Yeah. All right. Let me just read you something here because I think it's really fun. I just Googled up Grexes and I found the Heirloom Survivors Grex. This is a company called Wild Mountain Seeds. In the late winter and early spring of 2018, we set out to step up our frost tolerant trials. 
we seeded nearly 1,500 tomatoes of diverse wow. parentage to a tray and treated it with continued temperatures in the 28 to 32 degree range. That's freezing. When they're germinating? They're, no, they're up and little plants in a tray by then. All right. They germinated, but they're just little seedlings in a tray. After losing many of them, and you would expect that it's freezing, over these treatments, we felt we needed to turn up the pressure to thin the herd to a manageable population size. This is what John Navazio, one of the breeders, a friend of mine at Johnny Selected Seeds would say, go hard on them. So the next night we left the tray on the porch at 6,400 feet in Colorado in early February. The lows dropped to 24 and we wow. weren't sure if we would see any survivors. To our surprise, about 50 specimens survived. 50 varieties? No, 50 little plants. 50 plants, okay. Um, diverse parentage. Again, we're just mixing stuff. We don't know where they came from. They survived and are the parents of this diverse grex. All the survivors showed added amounts of fur, vigor, and were surprisingly quite diverse, representing all colors that we grow. Many of the specimens were new varieties and many adapted the anthrocyanin trait that we have from Dr. Jim Myers of Oregon to thank for. The results are exciting and we are happy to offer a very limited amount of seeds this season. This is the Heirloom Survivors Grex. I think wow. in that story, it points out the possibilities we have now of finding mind-blowingly adapted things for every niche climate that we all live in. So my goal we're in my next experiment next winter is to find wheat, barley, rice that grow in almost pure sand with all two right. inches of rainfall a year because that's where I'm spending my winters. And now I've got the tool to try to do that. So when I typed in heirloom survivors Grex into a search engine, wild mountain seeds comes up and it looks like it's this story you just told. That's it. That's where I found it. Lori says, my question is around safety. Example is some very rare crosses of C. Pepo can end up with a highly toxic component. So while C. Pepo, is that a pepper? No, it's, it is the species of squash that, oh. yeah, that includes zucchinis and pumpkins. Oh, that's right. This is the right. one where, the, right. where they taste bad. Yeah, they get the bitter gene. Great. Okay, the bitter gene. Okay. So while C. Pepo probably doesn't cross with other squash varieties like mochata, how do seed saving folks test individual Grex of C. Pepo or if they'd mix out with Machada, for example? Yeah. So the definition of a species is that it won't cross with another species. Mm -hmm. It turns out that what we call squash is four distinct species. Yep. There's more that than I guess that. I knew. Yeah. So C. So Cucubertus Pepo is one of those species. And they're actually. The, uh, the toxic component that she speaks about could be found in any cucubertus. And the reason you can explain it, all wild cucubertus has it. It's an insect repellent. It's a predator repellent. And it's bitter. 
it's unbelievably bitter. That's why you can't go out in the Southwest and pick coyote melons, they're called. They grow wild. Out, there's a cuckoo bird that grows wild in Arizona out in the desert. But it tastes so bitter, you would never eat it. Yeah. In fact, it can be dangerous if you got enough of it. But in most cases, I'll just talk generally, it's so bitter, you would never put enough of it in your mouth to, uh, hurt your, to really hurt yourself. There may okay. be examples of it, but in my own life experience, the people I've known that have encountered it have figured it out pretty quickly and know not to eat it. Now, it's rare, it, but it does show up. It even shows up in modern varieties and hybrid varieties. It's just the way the dice roll sometimes. They've never been able to get rid of it completely. And I could tell all sorts of stories about that. And if you want to get in touch with me, and I'd love to tell you the story about my trip to Holler and Company, which is the largest family producer of cucubert seed in North America. And they deal with this all the time. But it's nothing to be afraid of. And it's certainly not the reason not to Grex. But my suggestion would be mix all your Pepo varieties together and grow them out. And let them mix, do whatever they want to do, and select out the ones that you like. And if there's any hint of any of them being bitter, don't save the seeds. Get rid of that. That's all Holler and Company's been doing with it for 100 years. That's why we don't see it very often in modern varieties. And if you want machadas and if you want the mixtas or the others, mix your seeds to those together, at least in the beginning. Now, there can be interspecies cross crosses. And if you just want to find a squash that works best, you can just mix them all together and see which one plant works best for you. You may not get a pepo, you may not get a mixed up, but you'll get whatever works for you. So the concept works the same. So she says this sea pepo discussion, sometimes a seed saver may not taste each individual squash before saving seeds from them. Maybe, maybe you should do on pepos. You maybe you should. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Cool. Dennis says, "Is this something that can be done in your Seed Up conference in November, the Great American <laughs> Seed Up in Phoenix, to do ten or fifteen major vegetable types?" Dennis lives in Rocky Point. That's a right. similar climate to where you are at, Bill. Right. Right. And yeah, this would be a great way to figure out what works down in Rocky Point. And Dennis, we should work together because I'm just 38 miles west of you in San Felipe. So a lot of the same climate. Yeah. So here's the thing. It's possible for us to put together some Grexes, start to do it for the great American seed up. But we have a limitation. And the limitation is getting enough seed for all the different kinds of varieties. Yeah. And so we might start doing that for one or two or three to begin with. Instead, what we've done is we found the land race varieties that have already been selected out by generations in some cases for things that work and are adaptable in a wide variety of areas to serve the customers that we have. So in a sense, we've used some of this thinking, but we don't have Grexes for sale yet. Make up your own. Actually, that's not quite true. We don't have them for sale. But right. I, when in my move here, I came right. up with a bag in my seed collection of about right. two pounds of seeds, right. which are the floor sweepings. Right. There you go. And it's just everything and anything that was at the Great American Seed Up. That's why local comes in. So a seed library or a local seed exchange 
is a way better place because you get way more diversity. Yeah. So have you tried to have a local seed exchange in Rocky Point for all the people that may have gardened and have seeds there? Yeah. And start with all the stuff that has already been grown there that all the people have. That would be a way more powerful, Grex. You're farther down the road just to start with than anything that we could give you up in Phoenix, probably. It may be that we're all pioneers again. I'm astounded sometimes at the lack of diversity in some places. And we've got a local tomato and lettuce and kale grower here, I found, at the farmer's market in San Felipe. Fresh, local, organically grown greens. They're beautiful, Greg. Incredible. Wow. Where do you get your seeds? Oh, I'm the reds and they come from the United States. And it's, oh, what a missed opportunity. Over the last few years, this guy could have been saving his own seeds and adapting things so that they grow better here. We get to start doing that now. Oh, <laughs> Dennis says not yet. He hasn't done that yet. But so far, vegetables from the compost piles has done the best. There you go. <laughs> Gotta love it. All right. Let's see. Lori says, if one really wants to Grex a sulfur, then do you consider it best to hand pollinate? Example, snow peas with Beauregard, purple pod, snow peas. First of all, define for those people that don't know, what's a sulfur? The structure of the flower on the plant is such that it almost always pollinates itself before the flower even opens. Yeah. Okay. So you don't have to worry about pollen coming in from a neighbor or a different variety. So what do you do with selfers to make Grex's happen? Well, okay. So it depends on what your goal is. If your goal is a new land race, which is a diverse, promiscuously, locally adapted crop, that you can depend on every year. That's the perfect balance between productivity for you and resistance to all the things that might happen, whether they're hurricanes or bugs or whatever. If that's your goal, it's harder with lettuce and the sulfurs to actually create that. Those are created more quickly with outcrossing crops because the genetics get mixed up faster and you save things you can see characteristics and save the things that you want in the new mixes much more quickly over a number uh -huh. of generations. In the back of Joseph Lofthouse's book, Land Race Gardening, he talks about how easy it is to create new land races. Both lettuce and peas are on the hard list. Now, that being said, that doesn't mean that you can't mix. And in my case, I've probably got 40 varieties of peas that people have given to me or I've run across or I've gotten at seed exchanges over the years. There's nothing to stop me from mixing all of those, growing them all out and finding out which one works for me best. But in a sense, that's my land race. Yeah. All right. And it all works for you on your level in some way. All right. Yeah. All right. Dennis has a, another question. This question has been bothering me since last month's chats. Thank you for attending last month, Dennis. And that is how do you save seeds in a seedless variety? <laughs> My friend Bruce, and this is, he is the lead breeder for watermelons at Holler and Company, the company that I mentioned before. They're a wholesale grower of 
seeds for the cucubers and watermelons are one of their specialties. And he is probably one of the fathers or grandfathers of most of the seedless melons that you find in grocery stores. That's his specialty. And what he will tell you is that it's almost impossible in nature to have completely seedless. In other words, there's one in there. Or if, the way you find them is if you let them mature completely and you're more likely to find some. So that's one side of it, if that's what you really wanna do. Those guys don't have to. They don't use those seeds. They grow the parents out and save the seeds from those. And then they cross those parents to create this hybrid. And then they sell those seeds that are mostly sterile because they're parthenocarpic, I believe is the method they use for that. Yeah, it's possible. That's all I'll tell you. And where you go with that and whether they'll pass on the seedless nature into the next generation, I couldn't tell you because I've never done it. You got to play with it. Colorado Gardener has a Grex that's by Penn Parmenter. It's a Penn, little article. Yeah. And that's a definition she uses. Penn is an amazing grower at what? 8,000 foot elevation in Colorado. Yeah, they've been very successful in selecting varieties and keeping things alive that work yeah. for gardeners at the edge. I've had her on the podcast a couple of times. It's Penn, P-E-N, Parmenter. You just search our podcast episodes. You can find her. She's amazing. If you're interested in more of this, I highly recommend Joseph Lofthouse's book, Landrace Gardening. I, you might find that at cornvilleseed.com. Also, at cornvilleseed.com, you will find rice, the rice grex that I sent to Greg. What was the URL? Cornvilleseed.com. You'll find a wheat grex and a barley grex. And Joseph Lofthouse has been involved in all of those. Actually, we got some seeds from the original thousand grex that was given to Occidental Arts in a college. Mm -hmm. Joseph grew that out and selected what worked for him in Utah. And then we were able to get some seed. Yes. We try to support. On the front cover is the fancy corn. I'm drawing a blank on it. Glass gem. Glass gem corn, yeah. Which we've probably done a podcast about, right? Oh, I'm sure. <laughs> Way yes. back. Yeah, you can yeah. search for the whole. If you want to hear the whole story of how that got started, that's really an interesting story. I was oh. came through my life. And in fact, in one, one summer, I was the only person growing it um, anywhere. I had been given the gift of the seeds and it came into my life and then flowed through and went out into the world the way every seed. Mm -hmm. I'm so proud of the way that we shared everything and it's out there. And that's part of how it exploded a decade or so ago. It became the poster child for heirloom seeds. At the time social media was exploding, here was a picture of something that looked really good on social media. So it took advantage of that. I'd like to think that the corn spirit knew that and came about those right. varieties that we took pictures of came about for the first time and were captured by camera just to do that. It was speaking through us in some way. So nice. So nice, yeah, nice. Save, save your own seeds, no matter what you do. Get as much diversity into your yard as you can. Have as much fun as you can and, uh, and come around. 
once a month and listen to what we have to say. Define land race, would you? Just because that's a term I went back to and got my biology degree to learn what it was. Let me read you what Joseph says in his book. I've got it right here. I've got a student edition. A land race is locally adapted, genetically diverse, promiscuously pollinating. Love that. And community oriented. So there's a story about it. It becomes embedded in a community because it's in a place and more than one person are probably saving it. That's what a land race is. And almost all of the modern hybrids and all of our modern agriculture was created out of varieties that were land races. Their Heinz tomato would qualify, I would say, that was grown clear up into the 70s. It was an open pollinated, adapted to Ontario, Canada, that was the basis of the canning industry. And it just worked better year after year, never hybridized. And it's those are the things that we can still find. That's what we sell at the Great American Seed Up and can be the basis of us trying to find things that are really adapted to where all of us grow in our little. And so let's just take this opportunity to talk about the Great American Seed Up for a minute. And let's tell that story. Bill and I have been in a conversation about how to transform local seed economies. And basically, your local seed economy is what seed is available in your local area and how many different varieties and so on and so on. And what I realized back in 2010 and 2011 was that if something happened, the place that we have seeds that we can acquire is a Home Depot seed rack. And that's it. So Bill and I had a conversation about building a seed bank in Phoenix. And the seed bank at that point looked like me buying a 25 cubic foot freezer and buying a thousand pounds of 80 different varieties of seeds and sticking them in there. So I did that. But in further conversations, Bill and I deciphered that it really didn't, it didn't fix the problem. Phoenix is 4.7 million people. And what would it take to have a thousand or 10,000 seed banks in people's homes in Phoenix. So Bill and Bell and Heidi and I went to Rocky Point a couple of times. And on one of those trips, Bill and Bell and I were having a conversation. And what did that conversation look like, Bill? I was just telling a story about something that had really happened to me. And that was a woman who wanted survival seeds. And she was going to buy them from my company, Seeds Trust High Altitude Gardens. And I had buckets with about 40 different varieties in them. And she was really happy. She wanted to buy a bunch of them. And and it looked like that was going to happen. But at the end of the conversation, I said something like, it's not going to work. And she said, what, the seeds aren't going to work? I said, no, the seeds will work. But it's highly unlikely you'll be able to grow out all 40 things. I don't know very many gardeners that do. And she spoke up then. She was a gardener. And she could do that. Saving seeds successfully from all of them, you know, to, to be really self-reliant. I don't know. That's, a, that's another thing. But I said, that's not what I'm talking about. If you're thinking about buying seeds for survival, how long is your garden, if you've got the seeds, going to last in an ocean of hungry people? 
if everybody else, you got three days of food in the grocery stores, Home Depot runs out of seeds, and you're the only person that has seeds and you're growing a garden, how long is that going to last? Yeah. In a country that it's 2.2 guns per person. In some states like Arizona, it's up to six guns per person or something per capita. Wow. It's just like off yeah. the chart. So she goes, oh, so what would work? That was the question, Greg. She goes, what I, will? That, I love that question. We yeah. will be saved by the question. So I go, oh, the only thing that would work is for everybody to have seeds and be growing their own food. In any kind of disruption, that's the only thing that'll work. And so I said, she goes, I'll call you back. And she hung up the phone. And so I no sale, nothing. And I thought that's the last I'll hear of her. I shouldn't probably have been so hard on her about whether it'd work or not, but I was just, I was trying to be honest. And so she ended up calling me up a couple of weeks later and she said, okay, we're all set. I've got the Idaho steak which is like a 12 or something Mormon churches in central Idaho organized. And the members of those 12 churches are going to come together in the largest town in that area, Salmon, Idaho on a predetermined Sunday. And we're going to buy enough seed from you, 80 different varieties that we're, and we're going to put the seeds in big bowls in this big hall on a table. And we'll get little packets. We talked about how to do it. We'll get little packets for everybody and they'll all scoop their own seeds and put them in their own packets. And we'll have little instruction sheets and they can write down their own instructions. And that way we can buy seeds from you in bulk really cheap. We don't have to buy the packets. We can afford to do it as a church and everybody gets their seeds. And I thought, what a brilliant idea. So I told this story to Greg at Rocky Point. And he goes, we're doing it. <laughs> right. My friendship with Greg is because he's the do it guy. He just said, and when he says he's going to do it, he does it. I had no idea how to organize an event like that. I don't have a mailing list to be able to do that. But I knew where to get the seeds and I yep. knew how to organize all of that. And so together with my wife, Belle, who is an event planner and Kari Spencer. Yep was indispensable in helping write descriptions and helping us with so many of the horticultural details. And Janice, who was the administrative mind behind it, and we all came together and uh, rented. How big is the church? The church hall that we use is 10,000 square feet. Unbelievable. So we set up the seed room in about 5,000 square feet and have 80 to 100 different varieties. We do this every fall. So it'll be the first week, first Friday and Saturday of November in Phoenix this year in 2023. And people come in, we sell tickets and people come in and scoop their own seeds. It is seed nirvana <laughs> in that room. I was just talking to one of my other mentors, Scott Murray. And he said, Yesterday, we were talking about the Great American Seed Up, and he said, Greg, my experience at the Great American Seed Up was mind-blowing because people were just salivating over seeds. It was just like this, the energy, I'm, I'm starting to feel it. The energy in the room was just like mind-blowing. So this November, I think it's going to be our ninth time that we've done it. And we usually get about 600 people that come through and scoop their own seeds. Um, and imagine 
on Saturday, midday, we get 200 people in this 5,000 square foot room scooping seeds. The energy is palpable. You could probably plug them in and they would light up lights. It's amazing. So if you're in the Phoenix area, and we actually had somebody come in from San Diego last year. So if you're, if you want to do that, um, you can come in for the event or when COVID hit, Bell, Bill's partner, Bell, she put together our seed up in a box. So we actually have organizations out there that regularly buy a seed up in a box from us, which includes all the seeds you need, the bags, the cards, the instructions on how to do your own seed up. And you can do your own seed up. So that not only electrifies the local seed economy in Phoenix, but we got people all over the country that are doing this. We've got a guy in Florida that's bought, I don't know, $2,000 worth of seeds from us. And the thing is, this thing is designed so that you can actually make money doing it if you wanted to do that. Yeah, 90% of the cost of a packet of seeds, if you go down Mm -hmm. to Home Depot, is the packaging and the system to get it to you. Yeah. So we're bypassing all of that. And so there's some room to move in there. So we make a little bit now because we have to package it up and mail it out. There's a lot for you to be able to and still have it get more seeds and have it cost less than people can buy seeds locally. And the way we designed the Great American Seed Up Seed Up bundles is that the seed packet size is five to 10 times the size of what you get in a normal packet in the store. And the average cost of a seed packet is what, 68 cents or something crazy like that? Yeah, and it really hasn't gone up. Yeah, it hasn't gone up much. So greatamericanseedup.org, do your own seed up or come to Phoenix and join us. I will be in Phoenix for this one this year, Bill. So we have a couple of, any other final thoughts well, on that? I we just have want a couple to questions. Tell you about the guy who showed up last year. Okay. He looked like he was had been outfitted at Banana Republic. He looked like he was on a safari, well dressed, obviously very intelligent gentleman. And he said, I was out answering questions and there was an empty table next to me. And he walked around for a while and then came and put said, Can I leave my stuff here? And I said, Fine, I'll watch it for you. And he went go out and he'd bring some more stuff back. And I'm about the third trip back, he goes, Hey, I got an idea for you. What you should do is go through and get one of everything that you sell and put it all together in a bucket or a box and sell it just like that. So I wouldn't have to be here for four hours doing uh-huh. that. He was going to get one of everything in the thing. And I said, well, that's a good idea. And he said, actually, I love being here. That's why I'm doing this. It's, I just love the energy. I just love to yep. be here. It's going to take me all afternoon to do it, but that's what I love seeds. I love this whole thing. And I mentioned this to Janice. This was Friday. So oh, Lord, we did it. And yeah. by Saturday, we had these things for sale. We started selling these boxes of one of everything. So that's nice. just, that's how we're evolving. Yeah. So come and play with us at greatamericanseedup.org. So here's a couple of questions. Raven, Steve from Wyoming says, a few years ago, there was talk of a documentary about Carl Barnes 
and glass gem corn. Do you know anything about that? I don't. Okay. I think there have been mentions of it, and I have not seen one. No. The documentary that I was in talks about it a little yeah. bit, but it doesn't give you the whole big picture, which deserves a story in and of itself. All right, Laurie, final question. Laurie says, when anyone grexing after seven years finds a specific plant's seeds consistently that they love, do you suggest them or us to use the isolation distances methods again in order to create OSSI protected genetics? Hold on before you, hold on. So as to protect these sweet survivors from big ags aimed to patent specific traits. Timeline, what's the timeline needed for to qualify for OSI? So let's start. What is OSI? The Open Source Seed Initiative. Jack Kloppenberg is one of the central people. He wrote a really great book, if you want the underlying economics of the seed situation, called First the Seed. Just some background. Open Source Seed Initiative is now worldwide. And this is a very important movement. You should absolutely do that if and only if you're going to scale up to an industrial level. In other words, if you're going to take your variety and grow hundreds, if not thousands of acres, and you want to protect it, if it's that good, maybe Dark Star Zucchini, which was the first open pollinated Grex bread vegetable that was very successful when it was brought to California because it was frost tolerant. And there was a time, Mm. there was one winter when they got hit with the frost where it was the only zucchini being eaten in the United States in grocery stores. So there's the danger then that one of the big companies would pick it up and try to patent some of, or whatever. But for most of us, that's not our goal. Our goal is to survive where we are. And we want people over the hill or in the next valley or in the next state to do the same thing and find the varieties that work best for them. So who cares? It reminds me of a poem of Gary Snyder's. He was talking about mining companies, but he said, mountain, be kind. They will fall in their own hole. All the energy to isolate and keep things pure and scale them up to huge levels is not probably, in my opinion, going to be viable in the near future with climate change. It's just not a viable strategy because what works in Kansas isn't going to work anymore in California or Montana or Florida or whatever. There's no need to do that. You would be better off putting your time and energy into finding new Grexes for all of the folks that live in and around you. And as I, this is my own path, give them away freely. Let's not worry about that commercial level. So again, if you're not involved in market farming or creating a variety that is viable, that's going to be a bestseller in the Johnny Selected Seed Catalog, then I wouldn't worry about it. Thank you very much, Bill. Lori says, thank you so much. So if somebody wants to get a Grex of the rice, what's the website again? Um, Cornvilleseed.com. All right. Thank you. Thank you all for listening. Bill, catch you on the flip side next month. Bye, guys. We hope you enjoyed today's episode of the Urban Farm Podcast. Remember to listen for tips, advice, and resources to help you on your journey with urban farming. You can find us on the web at urbanfarm.org 
or send us an email to podcast at urbanfarm.org. In the words of Vincent Van Gogh, great things are done by a series of small things brought together. Be encouraged that with each lesson learned and skill developed, you are one step closer in the direction of your dreams. Hey, Urban Farm Podcast listeners. If you're as passionate about preserving the bounty of each season as we are, hey, I canned my first peaches at the age of 18, and that was a long time ago, then you're going to love what our friends over at Denali Canning have in store for you. They're on a mission to spread the love and knowledge of food preservation, and they're inviting you to join the journey for free. Right now, Denali Canning is offering free canning lids to anyone who wants to dive deeper into the world of food preservation. Yes, you heard that right, absolutely free. It's the perfect opportunity for both seasoned canners and those curious about starting. Denali is about quality, reliability, and supporting the canning community, ensuring that you get the best results every time you preserve. So why not give it a try? Visit DenaliCanning.com forward slash free to claim your free lids and start your preserving adventures today. That's DenaliCanning.com forward slash free.